Hello, I'm Mike McCormick, station manager at KODX. On Saturday morning, October 23rd, I got a call from Ari Cohn, founder of the Post-Prison Education Program, saying that he had had a stroke the night before and it was clear he was having a lot of trouble speaking. Upon examination at the hospital, they found he had a brain tumor and scheduled surgery for the following Tuesday. In an email he'd sent to Anamari Couche, president of the University of Washington, the day before the surgery, he wrote, quote, I'm in Swedish Cherry Hill with stroke with surgery scheduled in mourning for malignant tumor. I sat here in tears with love listening to your podcast. He's talking about the podcast post-prison education program had produced with Anamari Couche just days prior to his stroke. It would mean so much to me and benefit so many lives if you would put that on your Facebook and tag Ari Cohn. Thank you times 10 million, you're in my heart forever. On Monday, November 1st, we learned that the surgery was not successful and that Ari had a malignant, aggressive form of cancerous tumor. So for this month's episode, Ari has asked that we air the podcast that he mentioned in his email. It is about 40 minutes long and will be followed by a 19-minute segment from the November 7th, 2019 Post-Prison Education Program Monthly Radio Show, where Ari discusses County of Origin. Hello, and welcome back to the Post-Prison Education Program's podcast. I'm Ari Rose Marquez, and I'm here with my co-host, McKenna Kearns. Today, we'll be sitting down with the president of the University of Washington, Dr. Anamari Kause, to discuss incarceration, recidivism, and the roles and responsibilities of higher education. Dr. Kause, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Thank you for having me on. Would you mind just kind of introducing yourself for our listeners? Yeah, I'm Anamari Kause, and I'm president of the University of Washington. Um, we have campuses in Seattle, Bothell, and Tacoma. And uh, probably relevant to this, I am a clinical psychologist by training. Uh, particularly, I work with adolescents who are in at-risk environments. I've worked a lot with homeless youth, and uh, I'm very interested in, you know, how do we make sure that higher education is accessible and plays a role that I think is very important, and that's the role of social mobility. And that means when I say accessible to all, uh, that of course includes um, folks who have had um, rough patches earlier in their life. I read your bio on the UW website and I saw that you highlighted educational access in there as well. And so I was wondering twofold, first, why you chose to emphasize that as president and then also how that manifests at a larger public institution and what policies you've enacted to try and allow to have more access for people. Well, I, I think particularly as a public university, um, we have as part of our mission is to serve the public good. 
um, you know, we are not about uh, continuing um, to, you know, privilege the privilege. Um, you know, there's no question about it. Our goal is to serve the public good. Um, at this particular point in our country, I think most of us are aware that we are seeing a greater divide than we've seen in decades um, between the rich and the poor and the hollowing out of the middle class. And I think that institutions of public education, especially big, large ones like ours, um, have a special obligation to, for example, being engines of social mobility, you know, being the kind of place where an individual of modest means you know, can end up getting the credentials to be a master of the universe, so to speak. Um, you know, we know, you know, right now we are dealing with a real crisis in our democracy. Um, people are losing trust in government. And part of that is they don't think that government represents their interests. Um, in many cases, and this is the case, whether you're coming from more of the left or more of the right, they think that government has come to represent the needs, the wants, the desires of an elite few. And I think that it is, you know, incumbent upon us as higher education to um, really prove that and, you know, be that kind of engine of social mobility that moves, you know, that, that allows individuals. Again, it's not that I want to be clear. It's not that, you know, there are some very deserving people that come from wealthy families and we want them to come to our university. That isn't the problem, but it's more about leveling the playing field so that everybody um, really has an opportunity as long as, you know, they're looking to better themselves, better their lives and are interested in themselves serving the public good. I'm wondering, as president of an institution, which, as you say, has a responsibility to do good for the general public, what do you think the relationship is or should be between institutions uh, like the University of Washington and Washington State's Department of Corrections? Well, I think that, you know, first and foremost, it's important for people to understand that, you know, who's been incarcerated and who isn't. It's not a question of good people versus bad people. That's not at all the case. Um, you know, I, I don't have to go into the research, but individuals from certain kinds of, you know, zip codes from, you know, at-risk environments, um, individuals that are more likely to be poor, more likely to be BIPOC, et cetera, you look and, you know, it's clear that they are much more likely to, in fact, um, end up incarcerated, both because, and it's not because they're more apt to commit crimes, but because, first of all, they're more apt to be caught when they do, and they're more apt to end up in jail because they either don't have access to lawyers or to the kind of family background that can say, hey, this is a kid who made a mistake, we'll make sure that doesn't happen again, you know, um, don't have them go there. And so, you know, I think that, you know, once you have that recognition, um, I think that you begin to realize, um, and, you know, there are people who talk about, you know, for example, the school to prison pipeline. One of our own faculty members, who's a physician, Ben Danielson, um, he's gonna be starting a program really looking at, um, you know, how do we, how do we stop um, low-income kids from getting incarcerated? Um, and so, you know, but I think that once we realize that it's not like people who have been incarcerated are, you know, worse people than we are, 
uh, you start recognizing that that's a wonderful opportunity to come in and help people change their lives. You know, as a clinical psychologist, I can tell you that there's specific moments in people's lives when they're most apt to change, where they're most ready to change. And usually that often happens with a crisis. Um, you know, when things are when things in your life are going, you know, swimmingly well, um, you know, there's no real reason to change. And I've seen that a lot with homeless youth, you know, young women that, you know, they get pregnant and all of a sudden they're thinking, I got to get off the street because I want something better for my child. You know, something happens. And um, being incarcerated is certainly one of those crisis periods where someone that, you know, may have been going, you know, along uh, may have. In many cases, there are people who have mental health problems or addiction problems. Some research that I did myself finds that low-income youth of color, their main place of getting mental health services is prison. And all of a sudden, there's it's a wake-up call to individuals. And I think if we can be there um, as institutions of higher education to take advantage for that moment when people are ready to make a change, we can make that a change for the better. It is, it is better for all of society if people leaving prison leave in a way that they're able to participate in society and be part of the public good. Um, most people, you know, most incarceration happens um, at a young age, between like 15 and 25. So we're talking about people with their whole lives ahead of them uh, in most cases. And the cost of prison is prohibitively expensive. The amount of money that we spend more money sending someone to prison than we would to college. There's no question about that. And if we don't take advantage of this moment in time when people are ready to change, and in some cases, if we start in prison, have the time um, to change. If we don't take advantage of it, we start this loop of recidivism where you come out and you come right back in and it's incredibly costly. I mean, it's costly to the individual. And I do think that these are often really good people where bad in bad circumstances. But even if you don't care about those people, that what you're interested in is the rest of society, it is good for all of us if they can return to society and make a positive contribution. You know that uh, I have a um, very um, soft spot in my heart for the post-prison education program and their success rate at keeping participants from returning to prison is over 90%. Just think about that in terms of lives changed and taxpayer money saved. It's incredible. I'm so glad you bring up the individual toll, the emotional and mental toll of recidivism for these individuals, but also you bring up the, the amount of money that taxpayers are paying to keep people uh, like Ginny Burton incarcerated. Um, Ginny, who I know you're familiar with, is a former student of our program. We invested between fourteen dollars and $15,000 into her and her education, and she just graduated from UW this year. But it costs taxpayers three times that 
just to keep her incarcerated. And I think, you know, what I want to add, and, and Ginny is, you know, is a good example of that, but, but you know that we have other examples of students across the university that, you know, that first of all, I mean, Ginny is leaving with some incredible skills and credentials that are allowing her to really change the world. We all know she was a Truman Scholar. This is, you know, the very highest level of scholarship that is available to students who want to work in the public interest. You know, I mean, she was right up there with the top students at Harvard, Yale, you know, you name it. Um, but also, and I think that this is very, very important too, her being here made our university better. The students who had, the students who were in class with her um, got a better education because Look at all the life experience that she brought into the classroom. I learned from her. Faculty members learned from her. So, you know, so I think, again, it's a two-way street. You know, we want to help these individuals, no question. I am so pleased that coming from here and getting the kind of education she did, the opportunities, and she made, she took advantage of everything, that she can enter the world and make the kind of difference that's going to matter. But I also think it's important to remember that all these students that took classes with her, the professors who taught her, you know, other people on campus who got to read about her bio, she made a difference in their lives. She made our university better. And that's really important. It goes both ways. The kind of, you know, think about when you're having a discussion in class um, where you're talking about uh, prison or where you're talking about addiction, think about what she adds to that discussion, um, how she's changed some people's way of looking at the world and understanding the world. You know, so that's what I think is really important is that, you know, um, that, you know, again, she makes our university better and she is enhancing the education of our other students. So yes, it's about her and no question, but it's also, it's about all of us. This is a win-win. I am really curious since you have worked as both the president and an administrator, as well as an educator and a professor in the classroom, how do you cultivate spaces where all of these diverse viewpoints can be spoken and can really be taken in by your students? And do you think there's anything unique about UW to make it a safer, and more accessible space for everyone to have those kind of conversations? Well, you know, I, I think that that's something that, you know, I mean, I, I'd like to think that we're special and uh, that, you know, that we do things, you know, a little bit better than other places. But I think it's something that, quite frankly, everyone is struggling with. How do we do better? You know, I mean, like I say, I think that one of, you know, there are certainly lots of positives about social media. And, you know, all, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, but what it's done is it's kind of allowed us to all go into our little cubby holes. Um, you know, so for example, you know, um, I, I'm going to talk about the days when the dinosaur roamed the earth, but when I was, you know, younger, um, you know, we all watched Walter Cronkite and we all got the same news. And, you know, when you'd sit around having coffee, you'd all talk about, you know, who was on that week. And now if I'm, you know, uh, more of a liberal, I'll watch CNN. If I'm more of a conservative, I'll watch Fox News. And the news that we're getting is different. 
And so when we talk, we have different facts or different perspectives. And, you know, and instead of arguing about, you know, what does so-and-so mean, you know, we're, you know, we're stuck on, no, I don't believe you. Um, And, you know, and I really think that we need to um, create, I mean, a university is the perfect place to create those safe spaces. Um, And I think that we've got to really work hard to try and promote those discussions because often we walk around with these stereotypes about other people that are very, that, that don't let you get past that, like the stereotypes that people have about anyone that's been in prison. You know, that these are people who have done horrible, heinous stuff, that these are, you know, sometimes the belief that these people are, um, that anyone that's come out of prison is inherently more aggressive, that, you know, you know, whatever. Um, And, you know, and they're very harmful because they stop us from seeing the whole person and connecting with the whole person. I'd love to discuss the application and admission process um, at the University of Washington, but also at universities and colleges around the country. Uh, For our listeners who aren't familiar with Ban the Box, this is an an advocacy campaign uh, for ex-offenders aimed at removing the checkbox that asks if applicants have a criminal record. So I'm wondering if you could speak to what the value is of having a criminal background check or the lack thereof. Yeah, I think that, you know, that what that, that you need to look at both your candidates and at admissions holistically. So it's not just one thing, but for example, we now have the a, the SAT ACT being optional. And we started that, we started our movement to that, which is a permanent change not just for COVID, before COVID. And that was partly because, look, um, you know, I can go into the history of the SAT. I won't do that now, but it started with very good intent. It was meant to label the, to, to level the playing field and for you to be able to get into a good college, not just on family background. But nowadays when everyone can, you know, when people who have money can put it into test prep, et cetera, what it ended up doing was privileging the privilege and not necessarily helping us find those who could benefit the most from higher education. So, you know, we've eliminated that. We don't do legacy um, admissions. You know, I think that there's a number of things that can um, work against, but one of them is the box. And I have to say, and I think that, uh, that, that some of you know that, 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 you know, I wasn't there initially. Um, you know, I won't say that I was enlightened from the start. Um, because I was, you know, I was concerned about, you know, it wasn't so much that I didn't think that students with a criminal background should be allowed into the university, but I did think that we should know that in advance so we could, you know, place them in the right classes, et cetera, et cetera. And what I learned, and it makes, to- you know, it's like, you know, for me, it's a duh, but, you know, at the time, you know, I needed to listen. And I, and I want to be clear that no matter what position you have in society, no matter how many initials you have behind your name, you don't know everything. And you have to be humble and listen to people. And what I learned was that simply having the box there was a deterrent to people applying. Because people assumed if the box was there and I check it, I won't get in. And so um, I'm very much against I'm very much in favor of banning the box. I'm very much against having a box at the time um, that you are applying. 
And uh, we worked hard, for example, with the coalition app, which we're part of with 150 schools. We really worked hard to make sure that they left the, ba the box off the app. Um, and the common application now leaves the box off the, at least it makes it optional, which is better because before everyone had to have it. It's not that it's not worth knowing that at some time after someone is admitted, because, you know, again, you know, we have, you know, some classes that, you know, we may want to, but it was a deterrent and we don't want that. Um, I think it's really important that when, when a student from, um, that's had a, you know, that, that's been in prison at some point, that when they apply to a university, that they're not having to sit there wondering, is this going to be held against me? Is this not? You know, that we want them to know that we're going to, we're going to evaluate you. And it's also the case that we want them to be evaluated at the time of admission. You know, we know as much as I might say, I don't care if that's there. I don't, we know that you know, sometimes uh, stereotypes are, are not conscious. And so we want to be sure that when our admissions um, office is making decisions that they don't know either. It, it creates a fairer process. I'm curious, how did you first become involved with Post Prison or become aware of the organization's mission? Well, you know, it wasn't under great circumstances. Um, you know, we'd had a problem on our campus uh, with a student that when it became clear that uh, he'd come from, he'd been incarcerated, uh, there was uh, some overreaction and it created um, a lot of friction on campus. And so I did um, believe that the way to deal with it was to know earlier in the process. And, you know, I'll be honest, I was coming in with good intentions. It wasn't that I thought, you know, we should never take someone that was incarcerated, et cetera, but I didn't want a messy situation again. And I thought that, you know, that, that, that we could, and then, you know, I met Ari. Um, the thing about Ari, who's the, the, the director of the post-prison program is he's one of the most passionate people that I know. And, you know, he's not someone that, uh, you know, that directs at a distance and, you know, when you mess with his kids, you're messing with him. No question. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I have to say that I'm sure the first encounter wasn't the most positive for either one of us. Um, but then it was like, okay, you have something to say. And what he did is he brought three students to meet with me. And I, I'm sure I was in tears by the end of the meeting, hearing their stories hearing about their hopes and their dreams, I really left feeling very much the way that we all do about Ginny. These are students that we want at the UW. These are students that in an hour have changed the way I think about things. They were such eloquent spokespeople and I could really see how giving folks like them, people who, you know, I mean, we have, I mean, you, you know that we have some students that go to college because they can't think of anything better to do. You know, and, and I don't, and, I, and that's not a criticism. It's just the next step. And they just take it kind of for granted. These were not, and, and they were all young men. These were not young men who took higher education for granted. They wanted it with all their hearts. And um, 
it was, I, like I say, I was in tears by the end of the meeting. And I was like, yes, how can we make the University of Washington a place that can help young men like this? And post-prison is really an amazing program. I mean, it is so cost-effective. Um, the kinds of investments they make are very modest. Again, compared to the, I don't know, 50 some, you know, 60 some thousand dollars a year that we spend to keep someone incarcerated. Um, and, but you know, what, what's I think so special about post-prison is yes, it is the financial help, finances matter, um, but also the, the whole, the, they also are very holistic. How can we support this person? How can we make sure that they're talking to other individuals who have been, how can we create a community of support? And, you know, that's something that we really are working hard to make sure that all our students do. I mean, some people talk about the hidden curriculum. And, you know, what, what's meant by that is that, you know, there's this kind of knowing how to navigate college. For example, knowing that, you know, it's okay to get a C, it doesn't mean the end of the world. And, or also knowing that, you know, in some classes, most everyone gets a C the first time around. And, you know, and so, you know, students who's, in many cases, their parents didn't go to college, so they don't have their parents to talk to. In many cases, it's not just that they're the first in their families, they might be the first in the whole of the whole group that they know. Um, that having a support group that can help them navigate things, that can help them say, you know, you don't understand that, email your professor, go to their office hours. You know, if you didn't understand it, don't sit there, you know, um, beating yourself up. You know, that's what office hours are for. Um, you know, ask a question. And so, you know, that, that needs support because again, there's that kind of what I call, you know, the hidden curriculum that for some students, they know, they know how to navigate it there. You know, they can go to their parents. They feel comfortable going to office hours. You know, they're not intimidated. I was doing some research on African-American mothers and daughters, and um, I was having low-income African-American mothers and daughters come to campus because in those days, um, in order to do videotaping, you had to come and have, a, you know, and for many of them, they'd never stepped on a college campus and simply coming here was intimidating. I love the beauty of our campus and our old beautiful buildings, et cetera. But, you know, for someone, it can be like, oh, you know, they look and there's these tall buildings and there's the, and they can't picture themselves here. And so, you know, I think that that is part of the accessibility and, and the post-prison program really does that for students. They create a support network. They help to make this transition possible. You know, one of the things, and I, you know, I've done research on, you know, why students drop out and don't make it to school. And it's usually not because they're not smart enough, you know, uh, or because they haven't worked, you know, people think, well, you know, hey, you know, they, they dropped out because, you know, they didn't have, they didn't have what it takes. Um, no, it's usually economic problems. It's usually cultural fit. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's usually not because of low grades. It's usually not because they don't have the, the, the academic chops. It's all these other things and post prison, you know, really eases that. That's, that's such a huge part of what we do. Um, yes. Which is, which is so amazing. I, I'm curious though, what, 
what do you think the the responsibility of colleges and universities is to make themselves more accessible to potential applicants, especially people coming out of prison? You know, how can you dub or other universities across the country say, you know, we want you? There are, you know, numerous ways of doing that. And I do think we have a responsibility, at least as public universities, there's no question. And quite frankly, private universities get a lot of government subsidies. There is no question they get tax breaks um, that are, you know, often they're sitting on some of the richest land in their community. Uh, so they get tax breaks, they get, you know, federal government financial aid. So I'd say that private universities have a responsibility too. But, but I'll focus primarily on public universities because, you know, we do the heavy lifting just simply because of our size. You know, I mean, the UW has more Pell eligible students than all the IVs combined. Um, not because, you know, I mean, some of them are really doing a good job in upping the percentage of Pell students they have, and my hat's off to them for that, but they're small. You know, we have across our three campuses close to 60,000 students, so that, you know, we do do the heavy lifting, and I think that we do have a responsibility um, not just to not have barriers. That's number one. The most important thing we can do is to eliminate the barriers, but I think we also have to, you know, put out a hand. Um, I was very happy to speak at Monroe um, to some prisoners when, you know, Ari said, come with me. Um, and I hope that we'll be able to, you know, everything has gotten crazy, but I hope, I, I hope to be able to go to the prisons, to the women's prison, which is down near Gig Harbor, um, to speak to them because I very much want to give them the message that it's not just that we're not putting up barriers, but we want you here why it's so important to, you know, Ginny's going to give that message all over the place. Um, you know, that when you do bring in, that one student brings on another, brings on another. And so by bringing on, you know, even a few students, you create a pipeline and they tell other students. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, that we do need to not just sit back passively, but, you know, to be, and now, I mean, you know, the, the, as, as you know, now uh, students can use from prison, can use Pell Grants, et cetera. And I think that we all need to strengthen the programs that we have, because if we can get students beginning to think about higher education while they're in prison and taking a couple of courses, that will certainly ease the transition. I also wanted to touch on another aspect that you began with and talking about institutions responsibility and where this responsibility comes from. And I thought it was really compelling how you explained that having Ginny in the classroom created a much greater space for everyone, including the educators and the other students, and that she really enhanced everyone's educational experiences. And so I feel like from that perspective, all stakeholders in higher educational institutions really benefit from having these diverse viewpoints and diverse people and also individuals representative of the places that they're coming from and the places that they're hoping to represent in the future? Well, it's a ripple effect. You know, any student that was in the class with Ginny, if they go and create a startup, if they end up being um, head of HR in their organization, if they end up starting a company, they're gonna be much more open to employing someone that came out of prison because their stereotypes have disappeared. And so, you know, it really is a ripple effect. You know, one of the things about universities, sadly, our society has resegregated. 
it's been along income lines, but we know that income and race are also um, confounded. Um, you know, we either live in high income neighborhoods or low income neighborhoods that, you know, we have resegregated. And our schools, um, our elementary schools are very segregated because, you know, in particularly urban areas, you know, people have often left the public schools. And so they've got their kids in private schools. And so often for many people, university is the most diverse setting that they're ever going to be in in terms of socioeconomic, racial, et cetera. And, um, you know, that is, we know that, you know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, you know, we like to tease, but, you know, most of us, if, if, if you're ever going to make a movie and you want the soundtrack of our lives, it's the soundtrack that comes from high school and college. You know, those are the songs that, you know, that, that, that go through my head because, you know, that's such a key moment in terms of forming your sense of identity. And so it is an important, a very important moment for people to have that experience of uh, a diverse environment. Because guess what? The world that they're going to live in is going to be diverse. You know, again, it, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's one of those win, win, wins. Um, if, you know, believe me, if, uh, if you run a company and you're selling a product, you want everyone to buy it. You know, you want that person who went to prison to buy your product. And so thinking about, you know, even things like how do you market? How do you talk to people? If you want to um, go into, um, into, you know, into serving the public good, if you want to go into politics, you need to be able to talk to a broad range of people. And so the broader and the more diverse um, the other people in your classroom was, the other people that you ran into doing activities and clubs, the better prepared you are to live in the world and make an impact on the world. So it's a win-win. In a similar vein, I was really interested by the intellectual growth that you spoke of personally after you sat down with three people who were pursuing education who had been incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that both Ari and I realized really early on from working at the post-prison education program is that one of the most impactful aspects of what we did was just getting to interact and sit down with people, especially because of, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the stereotypes and othering ideas that we are often indoctrinated and hold on so tightly to. And so I'm curious if you have thought of any ways or can think now of any ways that lessons like that can be implemented in higher educational curriculums um, and if you think that that kind of knowledge of other people and like empathy building with other people that are so different from us can that come in to the classroom in any other ways other than just having those people sitting next to you as your peers well i think that there's you know that there's that there's a lot of ways to do that and you know and i think we have to use all the different ways for example right now um, our students are working on broadening. We have a diversity requirement for our undergraduates and uh, diversity isn't just about um, race, it's also about power um, and about marginalization, et cetera. So there's a range of courses that can be used and they're talking about, and with my full support, 
uh, they're working with faculty senate on making it a most likely a two course credit and i think that that's important but to have them question you know a lot of what uh when, when i talk to uh incoming first year students you know i often tell them that uh one of the things that's very different about university than about high school is, you know, in high school, you spend all this time, you know, learning the answers to questions. Uh, in college, you begin to question the answers. I mean, look, believe me, I want our students to read Shakespeare. And actually, you know, a number of Shakespeare's plays do talk about issues of power relations, etc. But I also want them to, you know, be reading a whole range of voices. Um, and, you know, when they read, uh, uh, you know, I mean, almost, you know, it's one of those things where if you are, if you come from uh, a high income background, chances are that you don't know anyone um, that's been in prison. Um, not necessarily that you don't know anyone who should have been in prison because white collar crime is real, but you probably don't know anybody that was. Um, on the other hand, if you are black or brown and low income, you probably know someone that's been in prison. And so when you read, um, you know, it's not even that you need to read a story by someone that's been in prison, but when you read about people from those backgrounds, they often do bring those stories in because they're part of their lives. And, you know, I think we need to, you know, look at history broadly including um, the history of our prison system and our policing system, um, which is not necessarily a very pretty history. Um, and so, you know, I think that there are lots of different ways. Again, it matters who the people are, but we bring voices to bear in lots of different ways. And one of the things that I'm excited about is, you know, how do we use this new technology that we've gotten used to, you know, this remote, in ways that are positive. I'm a big believer in in-person education. I mean, it has been fabulous to be back. And, you know, the real technological um, challenges to low-income students are very real. But let's say, um, you know, uh, Ginny can't be in every classroom everywhere. But for example, I can see a class where you might want to interview her and she could do it a lot more easily remotely um, or you can bring in a podcast or a film, and, you know, and I think that that we need to think about the various ways in which we can bring different voices into the classroom. And I think that that's going to be a really fabulous challenge for us. You know, I did a number of guest lectures across the country, including in a and including in a couple of high schools um, over, you know, over remote remote. And so, you know, I think we have better vehicles that we can use to bring um, diverse voices. I also think another way of doing it is, you know, and I'm very proud that now we have faculty um, that have also been, and, and you know, we probably had a faculty in the past, but they weren't, you know, they may not have admitted it, but faculty that are very open about the fact that they've been in prison. And that's really important too, you know, think about having a really fabulous faculty member and then knowing they've been in prison. Um, think about the number of people that they teach. So I think that, you know, we need to do that in a range of different ways. I am a big fan of the program. And if there's ways that, that I can be, you know, 
positive. I, you know, I really do want to go down to Gig Harbor at some point. We were going to do it, and then the whole world changed. Yeah. Um, because I do think we need to do outreach, and uh, we want to be part of that outreach. Some of that, by the way, involves you know working. I mean, one of the things that I've been working on um, is working harder with the two-year colleges um, that sometimes do have some four-year degrees too but with you know the colleges and the communities because that most of our students that come from post-prison that's the way that they came in and so trying to make the transfer project pro process easier um, I, I want to give you a statistic and that's that students who come to the UW as transfer students are every bit as likely to graduate as students who come in to the university as first year students. So that, you know, we really do want and value our transfer students. Part of why I say that there's so much power in listening to individual stories and narratives is it changed me. Dr. Kausei, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. If you'd like to volunteer, donate, or learn more about the post-prison education program, visit www.postprisonedu.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I think it'd be good to just talk about the history of this because I think what the legislature did was um, deceitful at best and uh, talk, uh, talk about who in the Washington State Legislature in 2007 was in that group that caused this piece of legislation to come into law, which is causing people to recidivate, be readmitted to prison, die, in really alarming numbers. And um, it was the Pierce County delegation. So for listeners, if you were a member of the Washington State Legislature, in 2007, as far as, as far as I'm concerned, you're responsible for deaths, for people dying. So what, what happened, so everybody has the background, is in 2005, the legislature passed a bill, Senate Bill 6308, that created a, a task force. And the uh, task force purpose was to reduce recidivism. And, and I'm going to interrupt myself because I think one of the sad things that I've seen the last 15 years is one ridiculous task force or committee or governor's fake like we're doing something group or whatever after another, uh, all with the declared purpose of reducing recidivism. And they kind of keep repeating themselves. They keep failing. Uh, recidivism keeps climbing. But politicians keep hoodooing the public into believing that they're trying to, to accomplish something. And it's kind of like we talked about at Town Hall the other day in terms of the biggest lie ever. Legislators want the public to believe that recidivism is this mystical, super difficult unsolvable problem but they're working on fixing it right and that all is a lie uh every bit of it so in after 6308 was passed in 2005 
that it created a reentry task force that, that went began work in January of 2006. And initially, it was pretty amazing. It was bipartisan. It was chaired by Deb, co-chaired by Debbie Regala, who was the Democrat from the Senate, and Mike Carroll, who was the Republican from the Senate. And uh, legislative staff was assigned to work with participants. There were four work groups. There were about 80 of us that worked for nine months and, and, and met multiple times a week. And um, at the end, the, the recommendations of those, uh, of that reentry task force went to Governor Gregoire. And for the most part, everything that was really good and meaningful got voted down by seven voting members. So like Regala was a voting member, Harold Clark, who was one of the most, probably the most despicable secretary of the Department of Corrections in its history, um, who I'm thrilled to say I was part of getting him fired. Um, uh, these were the people that were voting members, and they voted down the things that would have worked. And, uh, and so what, what went to Gregoire wasn't anything that would reduce recidivism. And to, to, to the point that one of the really good people in that task force was Mary Helen Roberts, who's now retired from the House of Representatives from Linwood. And I, rem I was in Olympia on another matter, and I was at the Red Lion Hotel, and um, the bill that led to 6157 came out. It was 5070, Senate Bill 5070. And... Mary Helen called me. She didn't know I was in town, but she called my cell phone. And she said, have you read this bill yet? And I'm like, no, I've been down here in meetings and I haven't. And she said, well, I don't think it has anything in it that the task force recommended that was meaningful. And, and she said, I'm thinking about dropping a bill myself. This was Mary Helen Roberts. And can we get together in the morning? So her schedule and my schedule, we ended up at her office at 7.15 in the morning. Bryn Houghton, who was Adam Klein's uh, legislative aide at the time, was in that meeting. And I'm thinking some representatives from the Quaker lobby and TRRC were also in it. But like 7 o'clock, we met at Mary Helen's Robert, at Bill, our office, in the House of Representatives, and she uh, decided to to pass a bill that would reflect what was what the task force recommended that hadn't been voted down by these Harold Clarks of the world. And frankly, Debbie Regalas and Mike Carroll's of the world. And uh, so she dropped what I think was the best bill in the history of the Washington State Legislature. It was, it was House Bill 1874. Later in the session, uh, Frank Chop and the Democratic caucus killed her bill in favor of the Senate's omnibus bill, which was 5070. And you can go online to the legislature's website and you can search these things and find them and read them. Uh, but 5070 worked its way through the Senate. And I think two people, uh, it had bipartisan support, and so it passed over to the House of Representatives. And they 
important part of this history is it did not have county of origin in it. That language was not in 5070, and that's the deceit. So the, uh, the Republicans in the House hated that bill, and they actually were robocalling people, uh, legislators, uh, in the middle of the night that were in the House of Representatives telling them, if you support this bill, we'll be in your district spending money and doing everything within our power to keep you from being reelected. And I remember Debbie Regala sent me an email at about 1130 at night, and she just said the robocalls have started. And I, another thing I remember is Frank Chop was getting phone calls at home from new legislators who were scared. You know, they didn't know how politics worked in Olympia, and they didn't know what this meant, and they're being robocalled, and, and these newbies were panicking. And then, and then the other people that were worried were people that were in districts where they, they barely won election, right? Maybe they won by 3% or 2% or whatever, and those were the ones the Republicans targeted. Anyway, the Repo- Republicans hated that bill. It, it made it to the floor of the House of Representatives. And the Republicans hit it with, if I remember right, 35 amendments. And, uh, and all the amendments are listed. If you go to Senate Bill 5070 of 2007, uh, you can read the amendments. And what happened was uh, Frank Chop, if I remember right, he was Speaker of the House at the time. He had, I think, seven bills that had to pass because that was signy die. So if you don't know what signy die is, that's, that's the last day of session by law, unless the governor declares a new session and, and brings the legislature back. That's it. Five o'clock on, on signy die. The session is over for the year. And so he had that deadline and he, he could have voted down. He could have called up every one of those amendments and, and the Democrats had the votes to vote them down, but it would have taken all day long. And none of the other bills would have passed. So CHOP made maybe what was a good decision uh, to let 5070 die. He didn't call it up for a vote. He didn't address the amendments. And 5070 died. So at that point, it's 5 o'clock. The bill 5070 is dead. 6157 didn't really exist except for it was over in ways and means under Margarita Prentice is just an empty shell. It's almost like with a stock exchange. They used to, you know, public corporations used to, that were authorized to sell stock would sell their assets and you'd have this empty shell. And then there was a market in the, in the 80s and 90s for these shells. And, sometimes, and, and, and so 6157 was sort of an empty shell sitting there waiting for somebody to put something in it and enter the Pierce County delegation. And by the way, Democrats, because Democrats controlled and, and well, not only Democrats, because Mike Carroll was a Republican and, and, but for Pierce County. So let's just say the Pierce County delegation and they were under pressure from Gerald Horn, who was, um, uh, if he's alive, he can sue me. But as far as I'm concerned, he was an alcoholic, hater kind of a prosecuting attorney. And he had been putting a lot of pressure on members of the delegation from Pierce County to the legislature to have county of origin language. He was on, you can Google him, Gerald with a G, 
and you can find YouTubes where he's talking about the Department of Corrections making Pierce County be a dumping ground, that more people were being released to Pierce County than came from Pierce County, and he wanted to see that stop. And this guy was uh, maniacal about it, really. And he used fear of people who previously committed sex crimes to, to, to make it a, a be an emotional issue where people's brains turned off and their passions activated. And so I think the long and the short of it is to kowtow to Gerald Horn to get his support, the Pierce County delegation agreed to put county of origin language into 6157. And, and, that, and that, I guess that came after Jim Hargrove was the chair of the Human Services Committee at, at the time. He's retired now. And he had seen for nine months Mike Carroll and Debbie Regala and legislative staff and, and, and people like myself and everybody else that worked hard in these four work groups worked their butts off for nine months. I mean, really work hard. You drive from wherever you lived in this state. Tim Bouts was coming all the way over from Walla Walla in work group meetings, right, about housing, about recidivism, about, about LFOs and so on, and jobs and opportunity. And Hargrove had seen the hard work that went in this, and he didn't want, I was told, he literally specifically didn't want Regala and Mike Carroll's work to be for naught. So he and I presumably Lisa Brown, but I don't know, Debbie Regala and, and others from Pierce County were involved in just taking the language that was in 5070 and just putting it into 6157, but they added county of origin. And, and what's, um, I mean, if you Google the definition of democratic process, you're talking about active participation of citizens. And that didn't happen with county of origin. It did not happen. People uh, and, and people today, I, you know, you've heard me on the show really be critical at best of, of Jeannie Darnell. I, I, it's like, and that's really my FCC approved language, right? Uh, I mean, I, if you're responsible for somebody dying and for deaths and increased, ever increasing recidivism, right, then your name ought to be called out. And, and you and Jeannie, if you listen to this, fix it. Go back and fix the wrong that you were part of in 2007. Um, but they put this language in, and then after 5 o'clock, so the session's over, it passed, I'm using that word loosely, it passed out of the legislature to the governor for signature, having never seen the light of day in any hearing room. It wasn't heard in Ways and Means, Margarita Prentice's committee. It wasn't heard in the House of Representatives committee that oversaw the Department of Corrections. It wasn't heard in Human Services, Hargrove's committee. It wasn't heard anywhere. There was no hearing. There was, there was no discussion. There was no debate. They just picked this language up, put it in, sent it to the governor, and Gregoire signed it into law. And then, and since then, it's been a major problem. The Department of Corrections doesn't like this bill. I mean, if it, it, I, I was, I'm not going to name names, but they, they, they know it's a problem because it is a problem, and 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 that that will lead me to why uh, Shalisha and I have Vincent Gronross on the, on on the, on the radio show with us tonight, 
the bottom line is so simple. If you take somebody who uh, has been to prison multiple times, most of their cases you're going to find, like Vincent's, come from Tri-Cities. Keith Whiteman from Pierce County, you know, and so on. And, and, and you see people, and I'm going to use Keith and then Vince will talk about Vincent, but you see somebody who's recidivated six times, and it's because they're being released to county of origin where they know all the wrong people, they know all the dealers, they know all the users, they know where they can, somebody will stake them a bag of meth or whatever it is that they can, you know, turn into cash, right? And, and, and so putting them back where they know all the wrong people, don't know the right people, have never been on a college campus, don't know anything but one thing, that's what drives recidivism. And that's why, for example... You know, Keith, in one of hundreds of thousands of examples, you know, recidivate, recidivate, recidivate until we get involved. And then we go to the Department of Corrections and we work to get a county of origin exception, which and exceptions are spelled out in the legislature, but prisoners don't know about them. And frankly, we found a million times over Department of Corrections line staff in the prisons, they don't know about the exceptions. We keep 100 color copies of 6157 ready to mail out or send to counselors or, or to superintendents saying, hey, this person fits the qualifications for an exception. Don't send them back to their county of origin, for God's sake. They'll die there or they'll catch another case and they'll be back in prison at $35,440 a year. Uh, you know, let them, let them go to Spokane if that's not their county, or Seattle or Pierce County or Bellingham, anywhere but their county of origin. And once we can get somebody's county of origin changed, then you have a good outcome. And, and I'm going to just switch over to Vincent. But, you know, the way this always plays out is somebody in the office, and with Vincent it was Shalisha, is, you know, builds a relationship with a prisoner decides that they're worth working for, that we should invest in them, but they're going to be released to their county of origin. And then somebody bugs me, and then I start talking to the Department of Corrections. And almost always, since Anna Aylward retired as Assistant Secretary of Community Corrections, and thank God she's gone, I mean, I fought her for five years on county of origin and didn't really win until Dan Pachoki was promoted to deputy secretary. And then he was a level above her and he could override her. And he, and he started authorizing exceptions for us. But so then we reach out to the department of corrections and invariably so far since the retirement of Anna Elward, uh, invariably the department of corrections has done a phenomenal job working with us to allow these. But for the people who don't know the post-prison education program or the people who hit us when we're so broke we can't breathe, they end up back at their county of origin, you know, right in, in, a, in the mess with drugs and addiction and very quickly are catching new cases and on the way back to prison. 